0: Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of my channel, The Center. and my guest today is Dr. James Flynn. He is a world-renowned intelligence researcher. He is also an emeritus professor of political studies at the University of Otago in Dunedin, New Zealand, and is also the author of several books, including What is Intelligence? Beyond the Flynn Effect?, are we getting smarter, rising IQ in the 21st century, and intelligence and human progress, the story of what was hidden in our genes. Dr. Flynn, it's a good pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for taking the time.
1: I'm happy to be here.
0: Okay, great, perfect. Okay. So, to start off with, uh, and just for the audience to better understand from the very beginning of our conversation what we're talking about here, uh, could you please tell us what is the scientific slash psychological definition of intelligence and what does IQ represent?
1: Well. Intelligence always has to do with measuring the capacity of people to solve certain problems that are emphasized at a particular time and place. For example, in our society, schooling has become an avenue of upward social mobility. So we're interested in measuring all the traits that pay off in terms of schooling. Vocabulary, we're interested in how you do mental arithmetic, we're interested in Interested in how you understand the modern world, these sorts of things, and people who can learn those traits faster or better than anyone else, they get better scores on IQ tests. If we were living in a traditional aboriginal society in Australia, the emphasis would not be on school valuable traits, but on map reading. You're in a desert, and you want to find water before you die of thirst, and food before you starve. And you would survey the landscape, and you would see uh, a cloud or something somewhere that showed that there was an oasis. And you would see symptoms that birds were gathering there. And who was better or faster than that would be the most revered person. Now, of course, within a society, there changes over time. Uh, at a certain point, we started driving cars, and that meant there was some premium on map reading in our societies, but now, of course, that we have automatic guidance systems, we don't need those map reading facilities. For example, there was a study of London taxi drivers, and some years ago, was found they had enlarged hippocampuses. Well, that's the part of the brain that's involved in memory and map reading. And I would predict that if we did the same study in another 15 years, we'd find that their hippocampuses had shrunk, because thanks to the automatic guidance system, they wouldn't need to do map reading more. And an IQ test, well, it measures you against the people who are your peers. If we measured a child's IQ today, we would pick a random sample of Portuguese 11-year-olds, and we would see which of them did best on vocabulary and general information and uh, mental arithmetic, and if they were in the top 16%, they would have an IQ of 130. If they were right at the average, they would have an IQ of 100. If they were down at the 16th percentile, they would have an IQ of of 85, and we would rank them against one another purely in terms of the IQ test that measured the abilities that are at a premium in our society.
0: Mm -hmm. Exactly. And so, one thing that I picked up from your work, and please correct me if I'm wrong about it, is that... um, The working scientific definition of intelligence, or even uh, what IQ measures, is not the same as being a wise person. Uh, That means that intelligence is not the same as wisdom, right?
1: No, you can have someone in our society who has a big vocabulary, and they're good at mental arithmetic, and they've accumulated a wide range of general information but their executive functions may be poor. Now, by executive functions, we mean essentially wisdom and running your own life. Uh, they may feel insecure, and they may get on drugs. Uh, they may not get on drugs, but grow up to be an adult who's very narrowly focused. Let's say they've become a great mathematician, and if you ask them, Is it wise for America to send armies to the Middle East? They may be at a total loss. They may never have thought about it and have no wisdom to contribute.
0: Mm -hmm. Exactly. And so uh, we have different types of IQ tests. So um, is there any type of test or uh, intelligence scale that is considered the most scientifically valid? Be among all of them
1: it depends what you're trying to measure if you're trying to measure tests that predict how well you do in schooling <clears throat> the two tests that do the best are the Wechsler test and the Stanford-Binet. and the Wechsler has two sorts of tests one is for school children the WISC the Wechsler Intelligence Scale for school children and one is the WACE, the Wechsler Adult Intelligence Scale. And they supplement school grades and seem to enhance the value of the whole bundle for predicting academic achievement. If, on the other hand, you're interested in measuring, let's say, mental agility, because some people who are from deprived grounds don't have the school skills, but they do have quicksilver minds. And the test that's usually favored to measure those is Raven's progressive matrices. And it doesn't predict school success as well as the Wechsler, but it does seem to rank people in terms of on-the-spot problem solving.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. So we have all these, sorts, uh, these different sort of uh, IQ tests. Uh, and in this case, you talked about the Wechsler tests. Uh, so they have different subtests in in each of them. Each of them gets. Uh, yes. and the, it, the uh, Wexler. Yes, yes. Continue, please. Yeah.
1: The subtests subtests are very prominent on the Wexler. The Ravens doesn't have any subtests, but the Wechsler, I think, is quite common sense. It says a bright kid over time will pick up more words than a dull kid. And vocabulary is highly relevant to doing well at school and well in the jobs we have in our society. And it says the ability to do mental arithmetic is important if you're to pick up the numerical skills we need in our society. And it says a bright kid will have more understanding of their environment. For example, a bright kid will, if you ask them why are streets numbered in order, will say, well, that helps you find your way around the city. And a bright kid will pick up more information. If you ask them what the capital of Portugal is, they're more likely to say Lisbon. And uh, the, they have subtests then, vocabulary, understanding, general information, arithmetical reasoning, they test for memory. That is, they have digits span forward and backward and they would they would read out numbers at random, and then they would see how many of those numbers the child could repeat back. Or they would ask the child to repeat them back in the reverse order they were presented, which be be a test of working memory. And then they would also look at other types of subtests. They would have a sort of three-dimensional jigsaw puzzle, which is uh, they would test the kid on. They would test them on... Using pictures to tell a story, uh, they test them on uh, spotting the missing thing in a picture, you know, something is missing, like the brim of a hat. Uh, they would test them on a test rather like Raven's progressive matrices, whether they could solve logical problems. And uh, they would test them on object assembly, whether they could put together an object from its component parts. So all of these things would supposedly be relevant to measuring how much that child had picked up these intellectual skills, and whether they had the skills necessary to make for success in our society.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, and uh, I mean then to calculate IQ, each each of these subtests uh, gets attributed a different g loading yes, on, e- on each
1: subtest. Yes? Yes, on each subtest they would compare you to your peers. Mm-hmm. And if you were an 11-year-old Portuguese, they would select a sample that would be supposedly representative of all Portuguese of 11 years in your society. And they would give you the test. And the score that those kids got, on average, would be 100 IQ by definition. That would show you were a dead average among your peers and if you're on the borderline of the top 16 percent you would get a 15 point bonus, you'd be an IQ of 115 if you're on the borderline of the top 2 percent you would get an IQ of 130 that it would go the same down the scale, on each of the subtests you would get that score and then when you added them all together you would get an overall IQ, let's say you were Two standard deviations above the mean for vocabulary, but say you're only one standard deviation above the mean for block design. Well, that would mean you would be battering, batting along at somewhere between 115 and 130 when you average the two, wouldn't it? And when you take into account their subtests on scores on all ten subtests, You would find out how much they were above the median on the whole shebang, and that would be your overall IQ. Mm
0: -hmm. Right. So, uh, and one of the main problems with IQ tests is that they have a rate of obsolescence. Right. Uh, What is this about the rate of obsolescence? And they have a what? uh, What did uh, you
1: say? uh, They have a rate of
0: what? uh, Obsolescence.
1: I didn't catch the word.
0: Uh, they, they have a, a rate, they, they, the they, get, they get obsolete with time.
1: Oh yes, yes, that's right. Well over time, uh, people in our society have got better and better at the skills that we emphasize today rather than 1900. In 1900 people had, in America at least, only on average six years of education. And, you know, that was traditional. And also the jobs that these people did were either subsistence farming or fairly non-demanding factory work. But as the 20th century evolved, you had the need for a much more educated workforce. You had all sorts of white-collar jobs opening up. And you had need for people to fill more specialized jobs like doctor and lawyer and mathematician and of course people responded. Over the 20th century you would find that one person would see that by going on to high school the neighbor's kid had got a better job. So they would start sending their children to high school. And of course this would upgrade skills. If you go to high school you get a bigger vocabulary. You have bigger general information and better understanding of the world. And if you do a demanding job like doctor you bring in all sorts of intellectual skills that you wouldn't do as a laborer on an assembly line. So as economic progress occurred in the 20th century, the demand for these skills escalated. It would be as if in 1900, no one was interested in running. But over the 20th century, the jogging craze came along. When everyone began jogging, they exercise certain muscles and they become better and better at running. Well, over time, if your society demands that more and more people have big vision, and a facility at numbers, the parts of the brain that those skills depend on begin to enlarge. It's just like uh, having to navigate a car. The hippocampus enlarges because that's the part of the mind that's used. The, the brain is much more like a muscle than we suspected. So as these new skills are more exercised, people develop different portions of their brain and uh, they escalate on IQ IQ tests. Their performance on vocabulary will go up from the average being a vocabulary of, let's say, 1,500 words to the average being a vocabulary of 3,000 words.
0: Mm -hmm. And uh, apart from the the fact that these IQ tests become obsolete over time, uh, what are other of the most frequent limitations of IQ tests and perhaps even the studies done on intelligence that we haven't yet talked about here?
1: Well, one of the things is note that IQ goes up. The uh, performance on tests escalate only if certain social demands are, are made. Now, there's some evidence that society is no longer escalating these demands. That is, today, at least in America, 52% of adults have some tertiary education. Well, you're not going to keep people in school until they're 40 or 50. And uh, so, it may be that the number of years of formal schooling is not going to go up anymore. You also have a matter that small family size pushes up IQ. And uh, you probably reach the point where we can cut the number of our children if we're going to reproduce. So families are getting smaller and smaller, but they're not getting smaller anymore. And further, you have more solo parent homes. Where rather than having the attention of two adults, they have only the attention of one adult. And progress now doesn't seem to be multiplying cognitively demanding jobs. It seems to be making so service workers that don't have the same cognitive demands that many people did in the past. So well through the 20th century in virtually every country, and I'm sure it's true of Portugal, performance on IQ tests has escalated. Now, in many parts of the world, that progress seems to have stopped. And in Scandinavia, there's some evidence that it's even reversed.
0: Mm -hmm. Yes, but uh, on the other end, and putting aside now these limitations that the IQ tests have and so on, um, they also predict academic achievements, professional achievements, and life outcomes in general – with a very good degree of confidence, right?
1: Yes. Remember, though, I'm not sure that there's any tragedy here. I mean, the reason that IQ isn't continuing to escalate is that society is demanding fewer people who really well on IQ tests. (laughs) So people are meeting the social demands made. Now, some of these trends are very worrying, of course. I mean, it may be that economic progress means that we won't need to employ or service our needs, which means a problem of structural unemployment. And since IQ has something to do with how aware you are of the world, it may be that fewer and fewer of our citizens will have the intellectual skills they need to read widely and think about public affairs. So, I'm not saying that the fall-off of IQ gains is insignificant, but I'm saying people are going to develop the skills they need to fill whatever jobs economic progress dictates.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay. So, so we've been talking about uh, IQ, that is intelligence quotient. Do you agree with proposals that came from people like, for example, Howard Gardner, about different types of intelligences as opposed to a single general ability, or even with the adoption of other quotients like the emotional quotient, which was popularized by Daniel Goleman? I mean, do you think that they can or could be useful to better understand human intelligence?
1: Yes, of course, because uh, how well you do on tests that measure your potential academic ability doesn't exhaust people's whole lives. It's good that Howard Gardner has these tests that measure a musical ability and that measure athletic ability and measure a lot of the things that people do in society. Uh, A child's sense of well-being at school, sometimes the child is just not particularly good at academic skills but they get a great deal of satisfaction from being captain of the rugby team or the cricket team or something of that sort. Or they may get great satisfaction perform- performing on a musical instrument. And it's useful to measure these things. Uh, but, and I think Howard Gardner would agree with this, although measuring these other things is important to see whether children can establish a sense of Personal autonomy and well-being. Society doesn't reward them to the same degree. If you're good at academic skills, it opens up all sorts of professional paths for you. If you're good at sport, you have to be a world champion to be a professor. You know, however, you can be at the 85th percentile in softball, but no one's going to pay you to play softball unless you're in the top one percent. Or you can be at the 85th percentile and playing the piano, but you can't get a living at it unless you're in the top one-tenth of one percent. So I have no objection to Howard Gardner measuring all these different skills that go beyond the intellectual. Uh, That's fine, as long as we don't have the delusion that measuring all of these skills is of importance. Now, you asked me some other question as well. What was that?
0: Uh, it was if you also you asked
1: yes. me Goldman. That's right, Dan, Dan Goldman. Yes. yes, it is terribly important to measure the extent to which people empathize with one another. You can have a brilliant mathematician, and yet they're very introverted and very lost in the world of mathematics, and may not be an asset to have around the department at departmental meeting. So measuring the extent to which people empathize with other people, they have emotional intelligence, that is quite important. Uh, If you're going to try and predict what role people will play in society, merely because someone is academically brilliant, doesn't mean that you want them to be leader of a research team. To be leader of a research team, they have to have emotional intelligence. That is a heightened ability to sense what other people are feeling, and to use that data to lead those people effectively.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, And just to cover another couple of aspects of intelligence, of human intelligence in this case, uh, could you please explain what is fluid and crystallized intelligence? And also... Yes, the fluid uh, uh, and the crystallized. Yes. Yes, please go ahead. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, the, the Raven's test, which is just looking at logical relationships between shapes, it's considered fluid intelligence. That is, you're trying to solve on-the-spot problems, and they've cut to a minimum the background knowledge you need to deal with them. The shapes are supposedly easily recognized by everyone, circles and triangles. And so fluid intelligence mainly tests on-the-spot problem-solving, and makes minimum assumptions usually about the amount of knowledge you need. Crystallized intelligence is based on another thesis, and that is that bright people with a normal environment pick up more information and more vocabulary and more arithmetical reasoning over as they age than ordinary people, and that's called crystallized intelligence. It has to do with the sort of cognitive skills you'd expect someone, if they were bright, to pick up from normal living. Uh, Jensen, who was a great pioneer in intelligence, remarked that he had a fellow next door who was a German from normal living. Uh, Jensen, who was a great pioneer in intelligence, remarked that he had a fellow next door who was a German. And he had not really been fully exposed to American society, but somehow he had picked up the rules of baseball better than many Americans had. And that was crystallized intelligence. He had picked up information through being a very bright person. Uh, Whether he would do well on on on-the-spot problem-solving would be another matter. That would be fluid intelligence. But he certainly had accumulated some crystallized intelligence. (laughs)
0: Okay, right. Uh, And now, perhaps, one of the most important questions here in this interview. Uh, What exactly is the Flynn effect, the effect you yourself discovered?
1: That's the accumulation of cognitive skills over time that are better than our ancestors. For example, my father, I'm sure, was just as bright as I am in terms of his genetic promise. But having only gone to school for eight years and I've gone to school for twenty one years, he would not exercise the parts of his brain that IQ tests require to the same degree. And this means that if you give people an IQ test today and you compare them to a random sample of, let's say, Portuguese thirty years ago, you would expect the people today to do much better. That is, the average person today would be no more than average among his peers, but he might well be ten points above average if you measured them against people who were with an arm thirty years ago. It's like the Olympic high jump. That is, someone today to qualify for the Olympics has to jump far higher than someone 30 years ago. Now, if you measured them against the people of 30 years ago, you'd think, my heavens, you know, a huge proportion of people can qualify for the Olympic high jump. But that's only because you're measuring them against an obsolete standard, isn't it? Now, this is of tremendous practical relevance. I do a lot of work on people who have been levied the death penalty. And if for some reason at school they weren't measured against an up-to-date IQ test, let's say they were measured against an IQ test 30 years before, they will seem to have a 10-point higher IQ than they actually do in the context of their own time. And in America, you can't be executed if you have an IQ of 70 or below. Well, against their peers, they do have an IQ of 70 or below. But if you measure them on an obsolete test against people 30 years ago, they look like they have an IQ of 80 and they get the death penalty. So I spend a lot of my time adjusting IQ scores. I say this person doesn't really have an IQ of, let's say, 78. If you test against current tests, they would have an IQ of 68, and therefore they qualify not to be executed.
0: Mm Okay, and apart from the fact that people nowadays uh, attend university much more and have tertiary education and perhaps are exposed to more intellectually stimulating environments, let's say, uh, are. Yes, other... for example, their parents. If you. If... I- yes, yes. Go ahead. Uh, no, no, go ahead, please.
1: If I just say, for example, they're, they're exposed to more stimulation at school. But if 30 years ago there were six children in a family, they got lot less attention from their parents than if there are two children. So it's not just stimulation at school; it's stimulation even before school.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes, I guess that when I was talking about. Uh, having, uh, being put into more st- uh, intellectually stimulating environments, I was also including, of course, the family environment in it. Uh, but... And uh, uh, also
1: the um, environment at work.
0: Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. And so, uh, do other factors... Yeah. Apart from the intellectual side of things, like for example, nutrition, sanitation, better parenting practices, access to a better health system, vaccination, and etc., do th- do factors like these also weigh a lot on the Flynn effect and the rise of IQ during the last century and through the there are certainly new-
1: yeah. Nutritional advance certainly had an impact in at least prosperous nations up to World War II. You probably remember the Great Depression of the 1930s when there was an economic downturn and people had a worse diet. Since about 1950 in much of Europe, uh, there has sufficient prosperity that most people ate better than they did when they were children during the Great Depression. So I would say up to about 1950 that things like better diet uh, actually have contributed, but since the 1950s, in most countries I think diet has been a pretty marginal factor. The very poorest people may have come up. But most of Europeans had at least a minimally adequate diet by the 1950s. Now, now, as to medical care, that has been very important in a rise of IQ among the aged. That is, today we're much better at keeping people functioning properly in old age than we were many years ago. So, among the aged, I think medical advances have been very important. Medical advances at earlier ages, they've been very good for the health of people, but I don't think they've had a tremendous impact on IQ scores. Because remember, while a medical advance may mean that a child is less damaged at birth, and that would mean uh, a gain in IQ, medical advance means that many, many children who would have died, who were born prematurely, have now been saved. And of course, sometimes premature birth actually inhibits your intelligence. So this may balance out, that is, for every child that's saved from birth trauma, you have another child that survives who has at least a mild mental handicap.
0: Okay, but do you think that perhaps in poorer countries, like, for example, the African countries, uh, nowadays... uh, Oh, yes,
1: that's that's a whole different proposition. When you get to countries where starvation is endemic, obviously, if people eat better, they'll do better on IQ tests. It's hard to disentangle, because normally, in African countries, where there's been improved nutrition... There's also been improved schooling. Mm-hmm. So you get a dual effect. You know, mm-hmm. the, if they get more schooling, their IQ scores start to go up. If, if they're no longer mm-hmm. haunted hunger, their sc- IQ scores go up. Rural Kenya is a good example. That is, you have a big surge in IQ scores in rural Kenya, but there are a lot of factors involved. Better nutrition, better schooling, forth.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. So the but,
1: third world is a whole new proposition.
0: Mm-hmm. Exactly. But would you say that the same thing happens, uh, for example, in poorer neighborhoods or in poorer places, even in first world countries, uh, that is, for example, in, in families with lower socioeconomic status?
1: There's no doubt that that's true. The larger the number of people who have gone into the post-war era in your country that have been in dire poverty or have dropped out of school at an early age, uh, they of course would, if been eliminated, that would mean a rise in national IQ. That you have to make a calculation country by country. Uh, What the data would show for Portugal, I don't know. I do know some Spanish data, and uh, certainly people in rural areas, if those kids now get better schooling and there's better transport and they're exposed to TV and the birth rate goes down, you would certainly expect at the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder more IQ gains than at the top.
0: Mm -hmm. Right. So, uh, and now to try to put it a little bit more into perspective, um, I, I'm going to say something and please correct me if this is not a fair assessment or a correct assessment of things, but would you say that it would be a correct assessment to say that there's a upper limit to IQ that is somehow, somehow genetically imposed that is a ceiling above which the specific individual cannot go due to biological constraints, whatever...
1: I'm quite sure sure that's true. Mm -hmm. Even if I were in the most environment imaginable, I would not equal the achievements of Einstein. (laughs) And uh, I'm a runner, a competitive athlete still. And even with the best training in the world, I wouldn't break a world record. So while the average athlete has certainly improved over the last 30 years, with better training and better tracks and better methods of nutrition, there will be a limit. That is, you're never going to get the average runner to run a four-minute mile. The very elite runners, of course, will run it. But there will always be a scale. It's just the whole scale is lifted. But the whole scale is never going to be lifted to the point where the average person is an Einstein or an Olympic champion.
0: (laughs) Yes, right. Uh, So... would you say that this is correct? And then what happens is that as the environment gets richer in all of its aspects, then the each person gets a better chance at reaching uh, their highest possible IQ. Is that correct?
1: Oh, yes, yes, that's right. The more the environment is enriched, the more people are capable of taking advantage of formal schooling and the more people are capable of taking advantage of a cognitively demanding job such as being a journalist uh... that's quite true but remember society has to keep providing those roles they aren't created magically at a certain point we're probably going to have as many journalists as we can possibly need and uh... at that point of course society will stop making these demands and when that occurs the stimulus to developing the ma- the mental skills of a journalist will no longer be there
0: mhm okay and so uh, now to get a little bit into more controversial topics i think uh, what are some of the main issues that arise when we compare the IQ of different groups of individuals in aggregate. And perhaps, I don't know if you want to go there, but uh, perhaps a good venue here would be to explore, and as an example, the differences in IQ between blacks and whites in the U.S., because I think we have uh, quite a lot of data on that. Uh, I don't know if this is true or not, but... Mm
1: Yes. Well, my, my view is that the blacks have a distinctive subculture in America which isolates them to some degree from the mainstream of American society, and that subculture makes fewer cognitive demands on them, and therefore that means that they have less practice at mental skills and will score worse on IQ tests. There was a wonderful study by Elsie Moore and she took a group of black infants, all of which were up for adoption. And half of them were adopted by white middle-class parents, and half were adopted by black middle-class parents. And at the age of eight, those black kids adopted by the white parents were 13 points ahead of those adopted by the black middle-class parents. And then she called them in to see what was going on and she gave the children certain cognitive problems, and the white parents were universally encouraging. They would smile, and they would say, that was good, let's try this. The black mothers were almost all censorious. You're not that dumb. You know better than that. And it was quite clear that even though they were prevalent in socioeconomic status, there was a whole different practice in the home of child rearing prior to school. Now blacks since that time have gained five points on whites. And I very much suspect that that is because the child rearing practices in preschool black homes have now moved somewhat towards the reaction you, the atmosphere you get in white home. I can't prove it because no one is doing such a study today. That is, we would need a study today to show that the preschool environment in black homes has escalated. But uh, my view is that there's nothing genetic between the major races, but there are different cultural settings that encourage the type of mental exercise that gets you to do well on IQ tests and that that mental exercise differs Consistently from society to society and from subgroup.
0: Mm-hmm. Exactly. And so, uh, I mean, uh, because there are a lot of factors working on here, it's very difficult to disentangle them uh, and to say exactly what is causing the differences in IQ between groups of people. But from all the data that we have...
1: It is. We... That, that's why l study is so important.
0: Mm-hmm. Exactly. But so, from all the data that we have until the moment, we cannot state, as some people do, that the differences, for example, again, in the US between blacks and whites, Uh, are all due to biological factors, right?
1: I suspect they're due to environmental facts, you know, that, uh, Mm -hmm. again, let me give you an example from my own group. I'm an Irish-American. Now, this is not so much true today, but let's go back 60 years ago Mm -hmm. and compare Irish-Americans to Jewish-Americans, who, by the way, did better on IQ tests. In Irish homes, there was an emphasis on things like sport, and if you came home and you told your father you had made the football team or the rugby team, he would be over the moon. If you did that in a Jewish home, your parents would say, are you crazy? What if you get a concussion and can't get into medical school? And if you brought home a good report card and arithmetic, they would be over the moon. So in those two settings, what would you expect? The Jewish child to get parental improvement, uh, approval would, of course, not emphasize football, but would emphasize doing well in their math class. The Irish kid would not get the same type of reinforcement. So it's not just black and white. It can also be a matter of the difference between being a child in a Jewish home or being a child in an Irish-American home. Now, slowly, of course, these subcultural differences tend to iron out. I mean, it's not that one group was biologically superior to another. One group had developed a cultural tradition that was different from another.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, And I guess that it's really important for us to know uh, what are The factors that work around in making in creating these differences between groups of people, because if we have the idea that these differences are completely the result of biological factors, then this could lead us to create social policy on that basis that would would not really result in trying to improve the lives of people who supposedly have uh, lower IQs, right?
1: Well, also you're assuming that people won't iron out these differences. Uh, I think many Irish Americans would... For heaven's sake, we love sport. <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, Irish life in America would be much less attractive if we didn't have the emphasis on sporting achievement. We don't want to a chew all sport because it might damage our brains we don't want to work 40 hours a week on our homework rather than 20 hours i mean different groups would say why should every irish american be like a jewish or chinese american so there will be cultural resistance i mean people are people they're not just iq test takers
0: yes exactly and so um, when in your work you talk about the importance, and you already talk a little bit about this here today, the importance of the exposure to tertiary education in IQ gains through the decades, are you talking about some specific sort of education, like, for example, STEM, science, technology, mathematics, and so on? Or can it be any sort of higher education that leads to the same IQ gains? What are you talking specifically well, about? Well, higher here? education,
1: I've been a lecturer at university now for 60 years. And higher education has become much more vocationalized. And this means that the parts of the brain exercised are becoming narrower and narrower. At one time, students all took a common curriculum. And increasingly in recent years, that has been underemphasized in terms of being trained to be a lawyer, to be a doctor, to be a sports psychologist, and so on. So that trend in higher education, I think, has led to people having fewer generalized skills. Fewer and fewer students, for example, enjoy reading good literature. Fewer and fewer students read popular history. Uh, But they're still better lawyers than they used to be and better doctors than they used to be. So the mere fact that people are exposed to more education certainly doesn't mean that there's been a gain in wisdom. That is, if the average doctor today doesn't read significant novels and doesn't know anything about the history of their time, they may be very good at diagnosing tonsillitis, but they may be a pretty poor citizen. So the impact of higher education can be very different. That is, educational institutions have changed enormously from when I broke into lecturing back in 1957.
0: Exactly, Uh, and so what? What you would say is that uh, it's not only uh, a scientific education. Uh, I I mean, we—it's not only science that allows for
1: scientific education can be. Yes, scientific education can be broader, narrow. They can Mm -hmm. take you into university and not be interested in anything except how much math and physics you learn. Or you can go into a university as I did, the University of Chicago, and before you did your mathematics courses, you had to take a core of 14 courses that covered the humanities, that covered philosophy, that covered history. So, if scientific education is highly specialized from the word go, you'll probably do very well on Raven's progressive matrices because the problems there are very like scientific problems. But you may be cheated in terms of being exposed to the wonderful world of literature, and your vocabulary may be smaller. So today, as I say, much education has become so narrowly vocational that you can say, yes, yes, to, be a com- to become a computer programmer, you'll do very well on Raven's progressive matrices. To which my answer would be, well, okay, but it's not a very important trait. You know, you've had a lot of of experience in solving problems on the spot that do with symbols. That doesn't really mean that you have grown intellectually in all the other areas that we would desire. Mm -hmm.
0: Okay. And so... um... The, the next question I would pose is one that interests me a lot personally. Uh, is there any rigorous research on the effects something like religiousness could have on IQ in terms of increasing it or decreasing it, or does it depend? For example, if someone is religious, but at the same time they are exposed to to a rich and stimulating intellectual environment, uh, does the fact that they are religious could have some sort of a toll on their IQ and their intelligence or, or not?
1: You have to distinguish between religion in itself and religion as a marker for certain social traits. Mm -hmm. Clearly, a person can believe in God and can be an honorable person and can be charitable and it has no effect on their IQ whatsoever. However, in countries like America, to be intensely religious means that you are more likely to be in, let's say, the southern United States, which also have a less efficient school system and uh, which also could put you in contact with people who sadly accompany religion with things like rejection of the theory of evolution, with having to reject much of what modern science tells us about the world. Now, there will be a correlation between being religious and having a somewhat lower IQ, but it has to do with all of the correlates of religion and social terms, that you're discouraged from thinking intellectually about evolution, uh, that uh, you are discouraged from getting an education at an institution that may weaken your faith. You see the point. Mm-hmm. So you'll certainly get a negative correlation between being intensely religious and IQ, though I don't mean to exaggerate the extent of it. But there's nothing to do with a highly sophisticated person who has religious experiences and is educated to the limit of their abilities. So it's it's not religion that's the problem. It's the fact that religion in America, at least, tends to socially segregate you in an achieving environment.
0: Mm-hmm. Exactly. So you're saying that it's not really. The fact that that the person is religious itself, but uh, in it's um, how
1: you're religious. You can okay. be a highly sophisticated person and be intensely religious, or you can be someone who is born in a Texas, in a Kentucky rural area, where you're told every day that you know evolution is a fraud, where you're told every day that the solar system is only ten thousand years old where you're discouraged from going to Harvard or the University of Chicago because they would undermine your faith. Uh, it, it, uh, this doesn't mean that being religious lowers your intelligence. It means that being born in rural Kentucky will be a negative factor on your intelligence.
0: Yeah, exactly. So again, as, uh, and as with other things we already talked about earlier, uh, in this case is not really it's not really a single uh, let's say intellectual aspect or intellectual factor uh, that by itself lowers yeah, you, iq you have to
1: you have to distinguish between religion as an attitude to dealing with the universe yes. and being in a particular church Being in a particular church can have a strong negative effect on your intellectual development if that church rejects the entire modern world.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay, exactly, great. So, uh, Dr. Flynn, uh, I don't have any other questions for you today. So, just before we finish, uh, would you perhaps like to share with people Uh, uh, some interesting piece of work you're doing at the moment and perhaps also share with them where they can follow your work on the internet.
1: Well, I've published certain books that preach the following thesis that our problems today are not that we're bad on IQ tests or bad on measured intelligence The most worrying trend for me is that students over my 60 years put their intelligence only to narrow vocational achievement. And all the statistics show that university students read less than they did 30 years ago, and the adult population reads less, and they accumulate less knowledge of history, They are less able, since they don't read the literature from various countries, of empathizing with people in those countries. And this makes them much more malleable in the hands of their leaders. You know, if their leaders tell them they want to start a war in Iraq, most people have never read a history of the area of the Middle East. They've never read a history of Western intervention in the Middle East. They have never read any literature from the Middle East, so they don't know how Iraqis or Israelis or Iranians feel and how they look at the world. So despite their IQs, they have not capitalized on those cognitive abilities that would make them critical persons. And I published at least three books that try to remedy this deficit. One is entitled How to Improve Your Mind, which I'm afraid is not out in Spanish and Portuguese. It's out in English, and it's out in Italian, and mm-hmm. it's out, I think, in Arabic, <laughs> but it's not, not in Portuguese. But if you read English, it's available from my book on the Internet. And I've published two books. One is called The Torchlight List, and the other is More Torchlight Books. And these, I'm afraid, are in English. But they attempt to get young people to keep reading. They say, look at these wonderful books. Think how much you would enjoy life more if you read them. And they give them lists of books. And I would dare young people to read a sample of these and not say, gee, this is terrific. (laughs) I wish I knew more about these things. So my research has been partially directed towards trying to make people wiser rather than make them higher on the <laughs> IQ scale.
0: <laughs> Great. And uh, will you will you have any new book coming out in the near future?
1: Well, I think it's important for people to be sophisticated philosophically. You know, because you mentioned religion. Religion is one way of trying to solve fundamental problems philosophical problems. Uh, I'm not religious, but those problems entrance me. And I published a good little book, I think the best book I've ever written, called Fate and Philosophy, which is in English, but it's available Mm -hmm. on the web. And I'm afraid uh, it's an attempt to say to people, every one of you has a philosophy, you're just not aware of it. Every one of you makes assumptions about whether God exists or not. Every one of you make assumptions about whether we have free will and how much we can praise and blame people. Every one of you makes assumptions about the limitations of science. Why not think about these things and become sophisticated? And right now I have in press a book entitled Homage to Political Philosophy, The Good Society from Plato to the Present. Uh, That book won't come out for about three or four months. But it's a pretty weighty tome, you know. It's a a book of some length. Uh, Fate Fate and Philosophy is a much better book because it's only, you know, 100 or 120 pages. And it tells people at least how philosophy has brightened my life.
0: Okay, great. So, I, li- I really love reading tomes, so I will be expecting that book when it comes out. So, uh, Dr. Flynn, uh, I think it was a very interesting conversation we had here today. Uh, I really admire your like. work and, and what you're doing, and I would really like to thank you for taking the time to come on the show and for being here with us today.
1: No, I was happy to do it. Always happy to talk to people who are interested in real-world problems.
0: Okay, thank you again. That book when it comes out. So, uh, Dr. Flynn, uh, I think it was a very interesting conversation we had here today. Uh, I really admire your work well, uh... and and what you're doing, and I would really like to thank you for taking the time to come on the show and for being here with us today.
1: No, I was happy to do it. Always happy to talk to people who are interested in real-world problems.
0: (laughs) Okay, thank you again. If you appreciate my work, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash the dissenter. Thank you.